Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, January 9th, Monday, the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. It's kind of an unusual year liturgically so far. I think it's because Christmas fell on a Sunday. So um, many of the, the normal feasts that occur after Christmas are happening on strange days, it seems like. We just had Epiphany yesterday on the 8th. And uh, now today we're having the baptism of the Lord, which usually occurs on a Sunday, the Sunday after Epiphany. But because of some vagaries of the liturgical calendar that I have not investigated uh, fully enough to to comprehend, um, this year it happens on a Monday, and so tomorrow actually begins ordinary time. It's a very, very quick, kind of abrupt transition back into the green season, (laughs) as it's called, ordinary time. Um, Although, I don't know, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Our seminary retreat begins on Wednesday, so there's something, at least for us here at St. Patrick's, kind of timely about this transition. Uh, As the liturgical season changes, so too are we transitioning into our retreat and then from there into the beginning of the new new semester. So that's what's going on for us here. As I'm speaking to you right now, I'm walking on our seminary grounds on the uh, Stations of the Cross path. And I'm seeing all around me the detritus, the debris left over from uh, the latest of many storms which have been blowing through the Bay Area. I mentioned on the last podcast before I made the drive back down that I was uh, aware of those storms and trying to plan around them. My trip down, fortunately, was completely uneventful. I went straight down I-5, straight shot down from Roseburg. Um, Little snow, I mean, no snow, thankfully. A little rain in Northern California around from like Mount Shasta City to Redding. Um, But nothing too bad. And certainly nothing like the stormy conditions that... uh, had had been occurring here in the Bay Area for several days before my trip down, and that have kind of continued since I arrived, although not as bad as they were before I came. But they are saying we should predict another week or two of rain and wind down here as uh, more storms continue to get funneled over to us across the Pacific on what they're calling the atmospheric river. So we have some more rainy, windy days ahead. When I got here last week, um, I was surprised to find a whole tree had been uprooted (laughs) and was lying on its side as if a giant had wandered through and just plucked it up for his own amusement. And uh, it had fallen across one of our side parking lots and actually its outer branches had landed on some cars that were parked there, although it didn't look like there was too much damage. So we had arborists come on uh, over the weekend and th- that tree that had fallen and then another one that was uh, damaged and, and precipitously close to falling they came and chopped them all up and cleared up the area but out here on the path where I'm walking now there's lots of fallen branches and um, debris and 
I can see over even to the right of me, away from the path, uh, several uh, yards back, um, looks like there's a cluster of trees that, that were felled in the storm. So I'm walking through a kind of a, a, a weary landscape. I'm reminded of my canonical retreat uh, in uh, El Carmelo, Redlands, California, down south in 2021. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast at the time, but I went and stayed there for five weeks and, you know, so I mean, five days. What am I thinking? <laughs> five weeks. I was there for five days and, and you know, Southern California is um, typical, like, just what you think of when you think of California weather. It's like sunny and 70 degrees all the time and everyone's always at the beach. So when I got there, it was like that. And I thought, wow, this would be a nice retreat. You know, it's middle of December and it's sunny and beautiful. Then, like, my first night there, a huge storm blew in. And for the whole night, you could just hear the rain lashing at the windows and the howling wind blowing up and pummeling the buildings with debris. And in the morning, when I got up and went outside, I was amazed not only by all the turmoil left by the storm, much like here today, but all the trees had had all their branches stripped off in the storm. And so, whereas yesterday... The trees there, um, I I don't know what kind of trees they were, but they had this thick kind of um, just rough, unattractive bark on the outside. And as I walked around, I was amazed to see like they were all stripped bare. And underneath where that bark had been, there was this very smooth, soft, beautiful like red wood that was exposed. So it was actually kind of a powerful image (laughs) for me beginning my retreat of like, All right, it's like one of the Psalms says, um, the Lord's voice shaking the wilderness. The Lord's voice uh, shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The Lord's voice stripping the forest bare. It was like that, the power of the, the, the word of God, like stripping everything away and leaving exposed what was beneath the surface. And amazingly, what was beneath the surface was so beautiful, whereas the surface level had appeared kind of uh, ugly. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the storm... (laughs) that has blown through here in recent days has just kind of left a big mess. Um, But there's a beauty in it too. There is. Things getting shaken up, stirred up. I like it. And um, I'm kind of enjoying this uh, winter weather right now. It's it's milder here than it was back home in Oregon, but it's it's a little cool, but I'm walking around outside without a jacket, so it's not that bad. So, yeah, I've been back here for a few days now. I'm uh, trying to get some some work done before the retreat. Um, I got my thesis draft back from my director. He went through it very, very carefully, meticulously, which I'm very grateful for. And he made a lot of corrections, but mostly they're very, very minor. And they honestly don't require any thought to correct (laughs) because he's already done it for me. So I literally just have to go through the draft on my computer with his version open next to me and just make the corrections that he did. I mean, we're talking things like sentence level, you know, um, oh, see some branches are falling from the trees right now, back away from the path. Um, Yes, like sentence level errors, like use this word instead of that word or clarify this just a little bit, simple stuff. There's like two areas where he wanted me to add a little bit of content and that's not going to be very difficult either. So I imagine once, once I sit down and do it, it'll probably just take me a few hours, go through the whole draft 
and then that'll just be done. The third round of revisions will be finished. I can send it off. Then it'll go to the MA director, the, the program director, uh, Dr. Margaret Turk, and she will have to read through it and give me her feedback. But um, once I get this round of revisions done and get it sent off, I don't really have to think about it for at least a few weeks, maybe a month or two, which will be good because then the next big thing on my radar is STB prep, the comprehensive exams coming up at the end of this month. My classmates have put together a study guide. Um, well, actually, the seminary put together a study guide for us. What my classmates have done is divvied that guide up amongst all of us. So we each have several sections that we're responsible for, and we have to answer the questions the seminary has given us, the kind of prep questions, and put them all, put all, all of our answers together into like one master document so we can all study off of it. <laughs> it's kind of a nice idea. So uh, I got assigned four sections. Two I basically already had finished because we had those review sessions with professors uh, in the fall. So those I just put in, put in my notes and that's done. But I have to do two more. One of them is Synoptic Gospels. The other one is uh, Trinity. So, I mean, those are areas I feel pretty confident in. But I'm going to have to sit down, crack open my books and my class notes, and go through and answer those questions. Um, so, hopefully sometime in the next couple days before retreat, I can get both of those things done. The thesis revisions, third round of revisions, and answering those study questions for those two topics. Then we'll have our retreat beginning Wednesday going through Tuesday. Yeah, that sounds right. So actually, that would actually be a six-day retreat, which is kind of nice. Um, the more time, the better, <laughs> or at least in my book. Although, at the same time, I need to balance that with uh, my, my real pressing needs to study <laughs> for the exams. So anyway, I'm sure it will all work out fine. So yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. Thesis work, uh, STV prep, getting ready for the retreat. One thing I'm hoping to do again this year, as I did last year, is uh, to work through this guide the Monk Manual produces. This year they've called it You Are Here. And it's basically a um, kind of a bird's eye view of the year. And first you kind of take a look at your own values. Then from values, you go to priorities. So this is kind of their whole thing. It's like being plus doing and, and being comes first. I really like it philosophically um, because philosophically that's true. <laughs> being precedes doing. Agere sequitur esse. So it's based on a very sound Christian anthropology. So being comes first. So you start with your values, like what's most important to me? This year, who do I want to become? Like who am I trying to become? Then from there, you articulate priorities. So what are my top priorities for the year in service of those values? Then from the priorities, you articulate goals. And the goals are concrete, you know. Like I always think of uh, SMART goals. One of my formation directors uh, taught me this acronym. So SMART goals are specific, they're measurable, they're actionable, they're um, relevant, and they're time-based. You can clearly see, did I do it, did I not? So if you go from values to priorities to goals, SMART goals, and then from goals to a plan. So then within the goals, you break it down into what are the steps to the goal and when am I going to do those steps? <laughs> like what are going to be my deadlines or like every week, what am I going to do? When am I going to do it? I like getting into the nitty gritty like that of planning, 
even though invariably my plans don't work out the way I expected them to, <laughs> I enjoy doing that. Um, and it's really helpful for me. So I'm planning to do that over the course of the retreat a little bit and uh, just start nailing down my schedule, my routines, which do vary semester to semester, at least a bit because my class schedule completely changes and also my, uh, my goals and things I'm working on tend to change a bit. So for this semester, I'm looking forward to doing that planning work and getting things kind of locked in. Um, I'd also like to start working on some homilies my Sunday homilies, one goal, speaking of goals, that I have for this year is to get ahead on homilies. I know maybe that sounds kind of funny, but I want to be working like a few weeks to a month ahead. That would be my ideal. So then I'm not having this problem of crunch time during the week where it gets to be like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I'm still trying to write my Sunday homily. <laughs> that causes a lot of stress. I know like, like most priests live that way, but I don't want to live that way. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to be far enough, quote unquote, ahead, that I'm not under the gun any given week. So then, like, I can kind of work peacefully. I can just continue blocking out my time each week for homily prep, but I won't be doing homily prep for the next Sunday. I'll be doing the prep for like several weeks out. I think that'll be really good um, if I can do it. So please pray for me to be uh, disciplined and. Uh, be able to get ahead that way. Uh, all right, so let's call that a wrap for this first half of the podcast. I would now love to jump over with you to our Carmelite segment. I have a beautiful conversation to share that I've been wanting to share for some time. I've been holding it in my back pocket until the time was right, <laughs> and now I think the time is right. So I would like, without further ado, to bring you into this wonderful conversation with Dr. Nina Hiraman, professor here at St. Patrick's Seminary, on a beautiful saint to whom we'd like to introduce you. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints, but I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. Well, welcome back to another Carmelite conversation. Very delighted to be joined again today by Dr. Nina Hiraman, Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Patrick's Seminary and a great disciple of the Carmelite masters, especially our dear sister, St. Therese. Dr. Hiraman, welcome back to In Your Embrace podcast. Thank you. It's such an honor and a joy to be back. Wonderful to have you. Doctor, as always, a couple of uh, episodes ago, we spoke about St. Therese. Uh, she's been a continual companion throughout these Carmelite conversations. But I think today we were going to speak a little bit about another great Carmelite saint and one, well, he's not really a Carmelite even himself, but uh, certainly a disciple of St. Therese. Uh, his name is Marcel Van. And I was introduced to him, I believe by you, in a conversation we had here in the refectory one day, put him out of my mind for probably a year after that, and something sparked the memory again, and I ended up 
buying his book, Marcel Van's Conversations. And uh, in this book, without giving away anything we're going to speak about later on in the episode, he has these colloquies with Jesus and Mary and St. Therese. And the quality of his conversations and the deep intimacy, but also the fraternal character of these conversations, the playfulness, the childlike spirit, really so captivated my heart. And I find him to be just a, a tremendous saint. Every time I open up any of his writings, it brings such joy and peace to my heart. And I, I think for you as well, he's been just a tremendous companion. So Yes, joy is, it describes exactly what he does to my heart. Mm. Joy and peace and consolation. Mm. So Marcel Van is certainly not a well-known saint, at least in, in the United States. So I wonder if maybe, Doctor, you could just give us a bit of an introduction to his biography. When did he live and... Yes. What was the story of his life? Oh, how did he have to be? I yeah. love telling his story. But full disclosure, he's not a saint yet. Yes. He's in the process of, <laughs> of canonization. I can't help but call him one. I'm, <laughs> Me too. I'm certain that he is. <laughs> too. When you read his books, there's not the slightest doubt that he's a saint. But we still need to uh, wait yes. for Mother Church to declare him a saint. Yes. But um, things are going in the right direction. So, Math Silvan, you know, when I first told you about his book called The Conversations, I think I must have said, I expect his diary of his conversations with Jesus and Mary and Little Flower to have an impact on the church similar to that of Little Flower's story of a soul or mm. even um, Sister Faustina's diary. So Math Silvan is a, is a Vietnamese, eventually redemptorist, but he was born in 1928 as the third child of a very devout family. His mother had originally uh, discerned maybe a religious vocation, but then she felt called to marriage and his father was a tailor and his early life was very happy. The first four years, family was well-to-do and he just basked in the la love of his parents, particularly his mother, but also his father. Mm. His mother, who was so devout, and that was typically for Vietnamese families at the time, and I believe still today, they would get up at 4.30 in the morning and pray the first rosary, and then they would reconvene two more times during the day and pray the rosary together and, wow. of course, go to daily mass. So from early on, mm. he was sitting on the lap of his mother and saying the rosary, and he loved the rosary, just loved being close to Our Lady. So much so that he would nag his mother all day long, let's say the rosary, <laughs> which ended up in her having to work while saying the rosary, mm. which, of course, was a great grace. When he was four, he finally got the little sister he was so much desiring to have. And he loved her so much that he would constantly cover her with his kisses, which got the mother worried and send him off to the aunt because she was afraid he would suffocate the little sister with his love. So that was the first um, wound he really received, uh, feeling rejected by his own family and being sent to live with his aunt. Hmm. And what was a particular trial for him, in addition to having feeling rejected, was that his aunt lived in a pagan village, mm. and he had a very sensitive heart. And he he was then the one who was aware that his cousins were not living a very Catholic life. Mm. And he is the one who, who induced the mother, his aunt, to speak more about Jesus. And then his cousins would make fun of him and call him a pocket saint because he was so small. <laughs> <laughs> but he was already kind of saintly, and they called him... Yeah, Van, you are a little pocket <laughs> saint, and that is his nickname to this day. <laughs> uh, eventually, he was allowed to come back to his parents, and when he was six, or just turned seven, um, his mother took him on an errand to the town. And in the town, she knew a priest who had a parish 
all of this is happening in northern Vietnam. Mm -hmm. This priest had a parish which was called a house of God, which means back in the day they didn't have seminaries like we have nowadays in the United States. If a boy felt a vocation to the priesthood, he would go and live in a certain parish that was designated to receiving these boys. So there were many young boys living with the parish priest, hmm. preparing for the priesthood. And the mother even gave money to the priest so that little Van could go and study. Van um, gets accepted there. And I should add, he, because of his great love for the Lord, he had had the grace to receive an early communion at the age of five. Hmm. Wow. And so being in that parish, he was the only young boy who had already had done his first communion and he was allowed to receive communion every day just after the priest. Hmm. Now you can imagine if you have a little pocket saying <laughs> in a parish with lots of other young boys who hmm. are not that mature, this hmm. causes a lot of jealousy. Uh, you don't like to have a saint in your midst, right? Hmm. If you yourself are naughty. So very quickly they started making fun of him, but but much more grievously there was, uh, amongst the older boys, there were those who did not have a vocation to the religious life nor to the priesthood, but they couldn't be sent back to their families because that would have been a shame. Mm -hmm. So they lingered on in these parishes and were just living the life of a catechist, but interiorly mm -hmm. not there. Yeah. Very soon, the parish priest had to go on a mission, and the oldest of the catechists saw his moment and tried to rape little Marcel Van. And for days on end, he tried to abuse him. And Van was always successful to defend himself. But then the catechist, of course, did not relent. And he said, I'm the teacher in the house. You have the obligation to come to my room three times a day. You think you're a saint? Okay, I'm going to give you lessons in discipline. Mm -hmm. So he'd have to come to his room in the morning. And then he would be flagellated mm -hmm. with canes. And sometimes he would get up to 16 flagellate, 16 strikes a day. And the catechist would say, if you say anything to anyone, I'm going to bury you alive. And of course, he was only seven. He believed this and he kept his mouth shut until luckily one day the lady who was doing the laundry discovered the pus and the blood on his mm. shirts. So the catechist was discovered. But then the next strategy of the, cate the catechist was he put scruples into him and he's they said, if you want to continue receiving communion, then we won't give you food. And so for a while, Van went without food, preferring to receive communion over the food. But then he was so hungry and felt like, okay, I'm going to die. So he started eating again. And then the catechist said, you can't receive communion. Oh. So when the parish priest came back, Van no longer received communion. And the parish priest thought, ah, okay, he's, he's no longer the virtuous boy. Because mm. Van never spoke to anybody about his sufferings. Oh. From that moment onwards, life became hell in that rectory. Now, remember, he was only seven when he was there for five years on end. The parish priest rejected him. The other boys didn't like him, made his life miserable. They told him he, he wasn't worthy of receiving communion. So he got so many scruples that the only person he could hang on was Our Lady. They took away his rosaries, every secret rosaries he made for himself. Finally, he used his ten fingers and he would hang on to Our Lady. The parish priest started drinking, women started coming. I mean, everything that we are suffering in today's church and what people have suffered from in our own life, this little boy had to undergo. Mm. Rape attempt, like imagine a suffering that children suffer nowadays, rejection from the parents, mm -hmm. uh, abused by the church. Van underwent it all. He was entirely lonely. He had no one to talk to, no one to share his heart. 
the only person he had was Mary. So at the age of 12, he couldn't take it any longer. And he decided he has to go home and tell his mother. And truly his mother would understand because he was afraid that if he stays in that parish, he's going to lose his soul, right? He, he knew this stuff is contagious and around me is sin. Mm -hmm. And he was particularly revolted by the sin of impurity. Mm -hmm. So he ran home. He managed to escape from the parish. But his parents were disgraced that a seminarian would come back home. Back right. in the day, that was a no-go. So the parents, first of all, they didn't believe him. They say, oh, priests don't do these kind of things. These things don't happen in parishes. And he was sent back to the rectory once again, and now in a much deeper way, experiencing a real rejection from the parents. So he managed to survive another couple of weeks in the rectory, and then he, he again decided he, he would run away. So he started living in the streets of Hanoi. Mm -hmm. There, eventually, a woman picked him up and brought him into her house. And then one day she overheard this lady speaking with her husband and a third lady that they were going to sell him into the slave market. And the suspicion I got from one of the commentators was that he was going to be sold into a kind of, a, you know, sex traffic. Mm. So he ran away again, started living as a beggar in the streets. And one day... One of the people he, he was begging was his uncle. But he about that time, he was so skinny that he w could hardly be recognized. But the uncle came by and said, oh, you little beggar, you look like, like Van. Mm. And he pretended, you know, not to understand. So he went back to the church and asked Our Lady what to do. And she told him to go back to the rectory. Oh. So he went back to the rectory. And there he decided... He needs to change the life of the rectory. And he gathered the youngest children in the house, the youngest boys, and he said, we are going to be angels of purity. So we're going to change this house. And in a very simple way, all we do is we take a vow to live by the rule of the house because nobody was observing the rule. Hmm. So these little innocent ones started living by the rule of the house. Wow. And of course, the older ones didn't like that started mistreating them, da, 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 but they were perseverant. Then they had to run the errand of bringing letters from the older boys to the guards in town <laughs> and vice versa. So they would bring letters from the catechists to the girls and the answer back from the girls. And of course, it was all about, you know, unhealthy relationships. So what the boys did, they learned how to forge the handwriting and they started forging letters from the catechist to the girl, teaching them how to be virtuous, <laughs> and writing letters back, teaching the catechist how to live up to their vocation. <laughs> but of course, one day they were discovered, and they were life started being different in the, re in the rectory, but they were discovered. Uh -huh. So eventually, um, why I'm telling on these stories is to make you understand that this little boy from the age of 7 to 13, 14, he already suffered everything that Jesus would suffer as an adult, right, mm. being flagellated, being mm. rejected by his own, his yes. own, how it says about Jesus, the word came into his own, but that his own did not receive him. Yes. Then I won't spoil for the entire, you still have to read his autobiography because it's in reading his autobiography, you really get the grace of getting to know this little man. At the age of 14, he's finally accepted um, into a different parish where he's allowed to study and prepare for the priesthood. And remember, I might not have said this, but from the age of five his only desire was to be a priest. Mm. So eventually he's allowed to study a little for that with two other boys. 
But he has one problem. He has this enormous desire to become a saint. And whenever he reads about the saints, their lives seem to be absolutely impossible to copy. Like, he's very small, his health is extremely fragile, there's no way he can fast even for one meal. And he thinks to himself, how can I ever be a saint if I can't live like, let's say, the courier for us? Mm. So he gets the temptation to despair. And he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, why do you have this impossible desire in my heart that I should be a saint? But it's impossible for me. Either take away the desire or show me the way. So he goes to the library and goes to the section of the hagiographies and takes all the books on the saints and put them on the table and closes his eyes and he mixes them all up and he says, Lord, give me the one book that's going to show me the way. Well. And you already know what's going to happen. <laughs> his hands fall force on the story episode and he holds Teresa in his hands. And he goes, I knew it. Here's another one who's impossible. She's on every pedestal in every church. She's a hero. And he throws the book into the corner. So then he hears this voice in his heart, like his conscience telling him, well, you promised the Lord to read the book. Okay, he goes back, he puts all the books back into the shelf and he takes the one he's thrown in the corner. Little flower. Okay, Lord, I'm going to read this. And so, yeah, of course, you know what happens. So he opens the first page and there he reads his own story. I yeah. so much desire to be a saint, but yeah. I can't. Yes. And he is so touched by the first page already that he breaks down into tears mm. and the tears are so many that the book falls apart. <laughs> he just is. Like rain falling on the book. <laughs> he starts reading it and reading it and reading it over and over and over again. And what I forgot to tell is a very important point in this story, which is when he ran away the second time, at a certain point, he came back to his parents again, and the parents again rejected him and um, let him live in the house, but as if he was a naughty servant or something. Hmm. So he's completely rejected by his family, including his beloved younger sister, hmm. Someone comes from the town and tells all these lies about him, like he is a thief and he's this and that, and mm. none of it is true. Mm. And he, on the model of Jesus, decides not to defend himself. And he oh. thinks to himself, God knows the truth. The truth will come out. So on Christmas Day, he does his Christmas confession. And in addition, he gets the scruple. He says, my parents don't like me. Nobody likes me. Maybe God doesn't like me either. So that's a real temptation. Yeah. He goes to confession and he confesses his entire life. And then the parish priest tells to him, Marcel, someone who's been graced with so many sufferings at your age, that's a, tr a sign of being chosen by God. Mm. You have been chosen. Don't mm. worry. God is going to take care of you. Mm. Of course, he doesn't really understand what that means, but it consoles him. And that night he goes to communion during the Christmas mass again all by himself his family's in the front he's in the back he's the one who's not to be associated with family he's the last to receive communion and when he receives jesus in his soul his soul overflows with joy and he receives the grace to understand his mission hmm. and his mission is to transform suffering into joy that is his first hmm. and deepest vocation so then he reads the story of his soul and many more sufferings, uh, misunderstandings in that rectory. One day again, there's a huge misunderstanding and he goes out wandering in the hill countries and he's sad, but suddenly he says, no, I'm not alone. I have a sister. I have a sister in heaven. And that's the moment when little flower starts talking to him. Mm -hmm. and he, he hears this voice saying, Marcel, and he's like, he, he knew 
I think he says he knew immediately in the bottom of his soul that it was Little Flower talking to him. And she says, yes, Marcel, it is truly me. From all eternity, God has chosen you to be my little brother. And all the teachings about the little way that he taught me in the depth of my heart, you have been chosen to be my secretary to put these teachings into writing. And God has united our two souls in a very special way. And I am to teach you my little way so that you can live it and teach others how to live it. Mm. And then starts an extraordinary time of joy in his life in which Little Flower teaches him her little way. And his life is so quickly transformed that other seminarians are starting to ask him, Marcel, what's your secret? <laughs> so he has a disciple at age 14 and he becomes a spiritual director and teaches his brother <laughs> how to live all this. And the brother is so amazing because he doesn't know the source of his wisdom. Um, but then comes a very painful day for Marcel Van. Little flower takes him on a walk and she says, Marcel, today I have to tell you something and you're not going to like it. You have to promise me not to cry. He says, okay, what is it? I promise not to cry. She says, it's not the will of God that you become a priest. Mm -hmm. I mean, that had been his desire since the age of five, but all the suffering was just to become a priest. Mm -hmm. Your vocation is to become like me, to become a victim soul of love, suffering for the sanctification of the priests and the salvation of souls. Mm. And so part of what's so endearing about Marcel is that he is such a childlike soul. Yes. And he says to her, well, how is it possible that I have to enter Carmel? <laughs> and I can't because I'm not a girl. <laughs> That's the only Carmel he knows. Yes. And, uh, and she giggles and he says, well, okay, I can ask God tonight to make me a woman. <laughs> and, 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 and Therese reacts in the same way as you do. And she says, yeah, go ahead. And so in the evening, he prays, Lord, I want to enter Carmen and do your will. Please make me wake up a woman. <laughs> Next morning, he wakes up a boy. And little flower is just giggling there like you are now. And he's a bit, uh, he, I think he wasn't so happy in the, moment, in the beginning to have her giggle at him. Because he said, why did you make me say this stupid prayer if you knew? <laughs> and, uh, and then he laughs himself and, and uh, Little Flower says to him, you know, of course God is almighty. He can do everything. But he would never do such a stupid thing as mm. turn you into a girl. Mm. He has created you a boy. <laughs> yes. And it's as a little man, you're going to, that's where your mission is. You cannot only live my vocation mm. in the Carmel. You can live that same vocation elsewhere. But I'm not allowed to tell you where your vocation is. Our lady will show you. Mm. And, um, and so then he follows her advice and he prays very faithfully and very uh, strongly to Our Lady to show him his vocation. And one night um, he's saying the rosary and he's kind of in a half sleep and this figure appears to him. He's freezing. He can't sleep for a cold mm. in, the, in that rectory. And uh, this figure appears to him dressed in black and because he's wearing a, a soutane and things Marcel hadn't seen of that style, he only sees this figure in black and he thinks, oh, this must be Our Lady of Sorrows. Oh. And, the, and the person um, asks him, Marcel, are you willing? And he answers, yes, I'm willing. And then this person with great tenderness caresses him and disappears. Hmm. And he receives great joy in his heart and he hmm. thinks, it must have been Our Lady of Sorrows because she's always, she's always dressed in black. A couple of days later, he finds a magazine on Our Lady of Perpetual Help and there he discovers... Hmm that the Redemptorist brothers have the vocation of spreading the devotion to Our Lady of Perpetual Help in mm. the world. 
and he knows, okay, that's where I'm called to be. And later on, when he was a Redemptorist, he saw a picture of the founder of the Redemptorist. So the person that had appeared to him in his dream was St. Alphonse of Liguri. Uh, but it's interesting, Alphonse hmm. did not, you know, he didn't identify himself. And he didn't say, Marcel, you're called to be a Redemptorist. He was there present. He asked him if he was willing. He caressed him, but he didn't didn't say that's your vocation. Marcel had to follow the voice in his heart, mm, like us. Right. Yeah, he was in reading right. this little leaflet about Our Lady for Petra Head that he saw the Redemptors, and then he felt that's what I feel drawn to. Mm. That's my mission to mm. be under Mary's protection and make her known. Mm. So then he would think his suffering has ended, but no, he writes a letter to the Redemptorist, and they tell him, okay, he was only sixteen at the time. We will accept you under the condition that you're willing to become a priest. If you want to be a lay brother, you have to wait for another three years because you're too small mm. and too skinny. Mm. And lay brothers have to work. We have no use for you. And then he has to say, no, but God does not want me to come. He is so succumbed to the will of God that he mm. even sacrifices his most dearest desire to enter religion to remain faithful to the will of God. Mm. And so they send him back home. Again, scandal for his family. His mother then sends a letter and says, the boy is so afraid of losing his vocation in the world. Please, please, please take him in. So they allow him to live there as a stable boy, living uh, in a shed with mice that run over his face in the night, wow. with mosquitoes that eat him up. One of the fathers says his face looked like that of a leper because he was so eaten by mosquitoes. Wow. And then eventually he's, he's allowed earlier than they would have liked to take him. Hmm. At age 16, they hmm. tell him, you're, you're received into the community. And he jumps for joy, and the brothers say, you're like a little flower. You look like a little flower. Like, it is joy <laughs> to enter the religion. But of course, he can't say that she's the, the secret of his life. And then, then comes the time at which he's allowed to be that little flower secretary, meaning during the novitiate, his novice master, uh, a certain Canadian, French-speaking mm-hmm. redemptorist, Father Antonio Boucher, recognizes the saintlyhood of this young man and he he orders him to write all the conversations he's having with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's how the book of the conversations is born. These beautiful, like you already described them, very endearing, intimate conversations between him and the child Jesus mm-hmm. in which Jesus teaches him how to suffer well. He, Mary, and Little Flower eventually... He has his final profession, and in 1954, the communists take over in Vietnam. All the Catholics flee to the south, to Saigon, and Marcel says, if all the Catholics are in the south, who will render Jesus present in the north? And so he asks permission to go back to the north, mm-hmm. and eventually gets the permission, goes back to Hanoi, and there he is soon arrested by the communists and uh, convicted to 15 years of prison. Luckily, for two years... Two priests are still allowed to visit him and bring him food and medication and clothes. But he would share all of that with the other prisoners. Mm. And he's begging Jesus to go home. And Jesus has long stopped talking to him. But once he comes back and he says, Marcel, if I free you from this prison, then who would minister to all these people if you weren't here? Mm. And so then Van understands he has to stay. And, and he's a bit like St. Paul because he says, everybody's coming to me and is asking for my consolation. And, and I'm exhausted. <laughs> But he knows that is his mission. And so then after three years in prison, I think he dies of exhaustion. So in my view, he's really, in addition to being a mystic and an atoning soul, he's also a martyr. Mm. Yeah. 
and uh, and later on, this father Antonio Bushi went back to Canada, and then he translated all of he he consistently, thanks be to God, asked Marcel to write a diary in Rasra, write down everything that happened, communicated to him, mm. and so then Father Antonio translated all of this into French, and it's only been recently translated into English, mm. and so that's why he's not so well known in the Anglophone world. But um, yeah, I think he's he should be known. Yes. Yeah, his his writings, these communications from heaven, as you alluded to earlier, I think this is a seed that's been planted now in the English-speaking world. And as this begins to take root, I mean, this this could be the beginning of a spiritual revolution, much like the writings of St. Therese. Exactly. Uh, he really is, as her little secretary, he really is an apostle of her little way for our times. Yes. I think he's really a saint for our times. As St. Therese certainly still is, but maybe particularly was going into the 20th century, now Marcel Van for, for our century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is very well said. Mm. So as you mentioned, I believe it was once he entered into the novitiate with the Redemptorist, right? That not only was Therese now appearing to him, but also Jesus and Mary themselves. And Jesus would appear to him as a boy of, mm-hmm. of, of his own age. Mm-hmm. There's a delightful conversation, one of these little colloquies, just to give a sense of the flavor of their conversation. This is April 8th, 1946. Marcel Van says this. During the meal, I asked little Jesus this question. Little Jesus, in bygone days, did you eat bananas? He answered me laughing. Marcel, it is not for eating that I came down to earth. (laughs) But afterwards, acceding to my wish, he added in a more gentle tone. I have never eaten bananas, and there are many things that you eat which I have not eaten. However, at this moment, when you eat something, it is as if I was eating it myself, since we two make only one. And on hearing little Jesus speak so, I was very content, and I ate two bananas. (laughs) I often think of that story when I want a second dessert. Yes. (laughs) Immensely consoling. (laughs) But but even more importantly, it's so beautiful you picked that story because it, Mm. it encapsulates Marcel Van's teaching so well. You know how St. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen. Marcel lives that in every aspect of his life, mm. including eating bananas yes. and playing and rejoicing. Yes. And this is something that I think too few Christians are aware of. Mm. We mm. all have been crucified with Christ in our baptism, and it is no longer I that live, but Jesus lives in me. Mm-hmm. And he desires to share every moment of my life with me mm-hmm. and transform every moment of my life, be it joy or sadness, yes. into a sacrifice yes. of atonement for the world. Yeah, and it seems to me that gets right to the heart of the little way of St. Teresa and the unique um, flavor or, or, or note of Marcel's way of living the little way. It's precisely in this this deep, knowledge and trust that he has that Christ not only is with him, but that we too make only one, as Jesus has told him in this little passage we just read. And uh, so his mission of transforming suffering into joy, part of the, the essence of the way that he carries that out is in every moment of suffering, it's not just him who's living it, but Jesus is living it with him and in him and through him. Mm-hmm. And in this deep union, then every suffering really, there, there's a deep wellspring of joy in it because of the union of Marcel with Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that is what, uh, what Therese, right. I mean, you remember when she's sitting in the chapel and this 
sister sitting next, just behind her and is grinding her teeth and it <laughs> so goes on her nerves. Yes. But that is her genius that she mm. recognizes this is the suffering which I am called to live with Christ mm -hmm. and offer it up. Mm -hmm. And it's these little things yeah. that made her the missionary she is. Yes. And this is also what she taught Marcel. He has these scruples and he's always afraid of offending the Lord. You know, then he'll be afraid because he's so small that maybe mm -hmm. he'll be kicked out of the congregation. Mm -hmm. He constantly loses his peace because he's so worried. He's a very anxious, worrying soul. Mm. And so then he enters into this worrying and loses the peace of his soul. And little flower says, Marcel, I have to teach you how to suffer well and not to miss the slightest occasion um, this is, now I'm using my own language, the wood for the fire of your love. Mm. Whenever you feel these perturbances in your soul, when you are afraid, when you are sad, when you're worried, take it immediately and offer it up to the Lord. Mm. That way mm. it is transformed in the burning love of Jesus' heart for the salvation of souls and sanctification mm. of the world. And then your life will become a perpetual offering. And that is what Marcel really practices every mm. step of the way. Mm. There is a moment where he's afraid and Jesus says, Marcel, I'm still here. Why are you afraid? I've not left you. It's very unfortunate, Marcel, that you get so easily afraid. If you moan of being sad for such a little thing, how will you be able to make sacrifices for me? You moan at the smallest trifle. Why do you concern yourself so? You know well that it is impossible for me to abandon you. Marcel, I love you dearly. Be always happy to sacrifice yourself for my love. No matter what happens, remain peaceful. As you still remain on this transient earth, you will still have to suffer many times. But do not worry. I remain always with you. Yes, always. Always. It is impossible for me to leave you, even for half a second. Mm. Little brother, remain tranquil. You're always very pleasing to me. Later in heaven, you will be with me on Mary's breast. We will then be able to converse quite freely, unlike now. The happiness we will taste will be a true happiness without end. However, little brother, that time is not yet here. It will still be necessary for you to suffer. But what does it matter, little brother? I will come back very quickly to you. I will not be long at all. I am giving you a kiss. So this is something also very characteristic. They're yes. constantly kissing each other. <laughs> which is so beautiful. Mm. And so, Marcel, I'm giving you a kiss. Your body is my body. All of you is mine. Little brother, I place you in Mary's heart, where you will stay with me for eternity. You will therefore always be in Mary's arms, and I, I will not cease pampering you. <laughs> be joyful, little brother. Never give in to sadness. Even if you feel a little sad, do not show it, since in imposing this sacrifice on yourself, you will please me a lot. This little great way of holiness mm. is what Mother Teresa has lived in human eyes in, in bigger ways in her 50 years of, of darkness, right? Yes. But it's the same. Mother Teresa... She knew she always wanted to only smile at Jesus and made her interior sufferings her sacrifice. And as we know, Teresa of Calcutta has her name from the other two Teresas. Yes. So she's a Carmelite at heart. Yes. 
another thing I would like to share about Marcel Van or about Therese of Lisieux, what she teaches him, and we've seen this transpire in this conversation, is how she taught him to be so intimate with Jesus. Because mm. when she first yes. appears to him, she says, God is our father. Mm. And there's so few people who understand this. Man is still afraid of God, but he's our father. He's truly our father. And he only has tenderness for his children in his heart. Never fear God. He is the all-loving father. He knows only how to love. And he wishes to be loved and returned. He thirsts for our poor little hearts, which come from his creative hands. And where he has placed a spark of love, his only wish is to gather these sparks of love and unite them into his infinite love so that our love lives on forever in his. Finally, it is still the force of the attraction of love which will draw us into the eternal fatherland of love. Offer all your little heart to God. Be sincere with him in all circumstances and in all your points of view. When you feel joy, offer him this joy, which swells from your heart, and by so doing you will transmit your joy to him. Can there be a greater happiness than a couple loving one another and exchanging all they possess? To act in this way with God is to say thank you to him, which pleases him more than thousands of touching canticles. Mm. If, on the other hand, you, you are invaded by sadness, say to him again with an honest heart, Oh my God, I'm really unhappy. And ask him to help you to accept this sadness with patience. Really believe this. Nothing gives as much pleasure to the good God than to see on this earth a heart which loves him, who is sincere with him, with each step, with each smile, as well with the tears as with little momentary pleasures. Now, little brother, is there still perhaps one more thing that you are afraid of? Have the patience to listen to me as to practice it, and then you will get, the get into the habit. So when you speak to the good God, do so quite naturally, as if you were talking to those around you. You know, here I hear Therese of Avila saying, yes. speaking like to, your, to a friend. Friend to a friend. You can speak to him of anything you wish, your game of marvels, of <laughs> climbing the mountain, of teasing your friends. Mm. And if you become angry with anyone, tell it also to the good God in all honesty. God takes pleasure in listening to you. In fact, he thirsts to hear these little stories which people are too sparing with him. They can spend hours telling these amusing stories to their friends, but when it's a question of the good God, who longs to hear such stories to the point of being able to shed tears, mm -hmm. there is no one to tell him about them. From now on, little brother, don't be miserly with your stories to the good God. All right? Therese laughed. <laughs> Such a beautiful instruction from St. Therese, so characteristic of her spirit. There's a couple of, of lessons I think we can draw out from this sustained contemplation on the life of Marcel Van in the light of St. Therese and also Mother Teresa of Calcutta. One thing that just comes to mind, especially from this most recent instruction of Therese to Marcel, is the need for honesty. And as St. Teresa says, for humility, which is nothing else than living in the truth. So a spirit of honesty and humility in our prayer to God and how much God desires that and longs for that. He doesn't want us only to come to him with hundreds of canticles yeah. and, and beautifully written prayers. Now, these are wonderful, especially as they're animated by the spirit of love. But the good God desires truly for us to converse with him as a friend with a friend. Yes. 
and how he longs for that, even to the point of shedding tears. Another lesson I think we can draw from this, especially the trinity of Marcel, Thérèse, and Mother Teresa of Calcutta, all three of them are really living this same spirituality. And I would submit that, I mean, Thérèse is the one who's revealed this to us as kind of a new, a new science of love uh, in our day. But this is really the secret of all the saints, I think. Um, whether we see it lived out in the life of Mother Teresa, which, at least from the point of view of the world, is a great life, in the sense that she, she had an impact on how many millions and yeah. millions of people. Yeah. Or whether it's lived out in the life of little Marcel Van, who almost no one knows about. Exactly. Exactly. It's essentially the same life of bringing everything to God as tinder uh, mm -hmm. for the fire of divine love, offering everything up, whether in sadness, whether in joy, whether in suffering, whether in delight, living everything in this most intimate and honest union of the soul with God. Yes. And it's, it's precisely in that, in the little details of life, before we hit record today, Dr. Hirman and I were talking about the awareness of living every moment in the little details and awareness that God is with us. Mm -hmm. That should affect how we spend our time online. Does Jesus yes. really need to be scrolling through Twitter right now? Yes, exactly. <laughs> but in every little moment of our life, Jesus is with us. This is the path to deep conversion, transformation, purification, and union with God. This is the way the Carmelite masters have taught us, and Marcel Van particularly so with his unique spirit of childlike joy and, and, and restored innocence um, for our day. Yes. Doctor, any final comments you'd like to share here about Marcel Van? There's so much to <laughs> share about him. Um, uh, I think you just really beautifully summed up the secret of his life. What I also find, um, while I was listening to you, I was thinking, you know, we do live in a time of great anxiety, political turmoil, even within the church. And um, one danger, particularly in the church, is to always point fingers at what the bishop should be doing mm. better, or the parish should be better, or if only the religious were living their vocation. <laughs> but no, none of that is my business. I am called to become a saint, and I can change the universe mm. by just living what Marcel and Therese, the Theresas, <laughs> in plural, are, are teaching us that Everything I'm living today, if I live it in union with Christ, yes. has the power of changing the course of history. Yeah. I mean, just look at the impact that the life mm. of the two Teresas have had on the world, particularly on Little Flower. We were also sharing how, how many people we know who've yeah. been changed by her life, but she just spent her life in the monastery. Yes. And, uh, and our monastery, our Nazareth, is our homes. If I'm a mother of one child yeah. or eight children, if I'm a bank director, if I'm a professional podcast or whatever it is <laughs> god has put me there and it's that which he wants to live in union with me and he yes. desires to yes. live in union with me just as he desires to eat bananas with marcel <laughs> and if i live it in union with him it has an impact on the economy of salvation and i find it so important to know for people who suffer particularly people who suffer mentally mm -hmm. because I, I do think that Marcel Van's sufferings do have a mental aspect to it in the yeah. sense that, um, I didn't mention this, but Jesus teaches him, at the moment you can talk to me, but there will soon come a time when you will neither see nor hear nor feel me. Mm. And I will still be with you just as I am now, but you yes. won't see or feel or yes. hear me anymore. Yes. And then he says, and know that when that time has come, you will experiencing sadness, dryness, loneliness, because 
And then Marcin's case, he says, I will be with all these priests that I find all over the world who have closed their heart to me mm. and who are far away from me mm. and your sufferings by the grace for me, so to say, mm. to be close to these priests and bring them back into that union with me, which I desire so strongly to have. Mm. So in a way, Marcel had to offer his own desire to be a priest, become this victim soul for priests who have been ordained, but whose hearts are far away from Jesus. So he then actually enters into this, there's pages and pages and pages in his diary where he's just in utter darkness, loneliness, dryness, misunderstanding from his brothers. And that's where he's transforming his very concrete and deep sufferings yeah. into joy and tinder for the yeah. love of Jesus to burn in. It's precisely the dark night of St. John of the Cross that Marcel is led into, but having been first prepared and taught the way mm -hmm. in order to pass through the night yeah. with the special note of atonement, yes. offering the suffering, transforming them into joy, not just for his own sake. This is not just a kind of a self-help no. philosophy. No. Uh, by no means, but for the for the good of the whole church, yes. he becomes a living sacrifice yes. in union with with Jesus. Yes, yes, no, it's by no means a self help. To the opposite, yeah, he voluntarily embraces these sufferings because his love so longs to save souls. Mm -hmm. There's many more dimensions to his suffering. One is his love yearns for the souls who never came to know Christ and who weren't baptized, and he's taught a whole prayer how to pray for them and put his faith make acts of faith in their stead because they can't they don't know the lord right and the lord teaches him he says i want everyone to be saved so you make these acts of faith and then i attribute it to them mm. and um, it's on about mm. saving the others yeah beautiful well i think we better leave it at that for today I hope we'll have many more opportunities in the future to talk about marcel van and his great way of transforming suffering into joy for now, uh, I'd like to conclude with a little prayer from his conversations. And we can offer this in union with Christ present within us and with us here with our brother Marcel Van and St. Therese. My dear Jesus, I love you very much. I know that your love would never be able to separate itself from me for a long time. I also am certain that your love always remains and wraps itself around me, and the fire of this love will envelop me for all eternity. Yes, eternally. Oh, my feelings for you, you know them all, dear Jesus. I have love only for you, my beloved, and I hand myself over completely, such as I am, to the flames of your love. But Jesus, I ask that you will surround each of us and those listening to this podcast and those for whom we desire to pray today, surround us with the fire of your divine love. Continue to teach us through the intercession of St. Therese, our brother Marcel Fan, St. Teresa and John of the Cross, Mother Teresa of Calcutta and all your saints who've gone before us, this way of living every detail of our life in union with you. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Amen.